The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 233. Just a reminder to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Also, if you could subscribe to our YouTube channel and give us a thumbs up there as well, that would be very helpful. That helps people find our channel and find our podcast and get the message of hope and help that we try and put out every single week when we record. Today we have an interview with a gentleman named Josh Torbich. Josh is the Executive Director of Christian Recovery Centers Incorporated. He also serves as the Director of the Ocean Isle Beach Celebrate Recovery and is the Chairman of the Brunswick County Opioid Task Force. He holds a Master's Degree in Education with an emphasis on business management and Christian leadership. He was born in North Carolina and he tried to manage his college studies uh, along with his heroin addiction and his party lifestyle. So we will find out from him how that went and what his point of no return was. Let's talk to Josh Torbich. Josh, is it Torbich? Yeah, Torbich. Josh Torbich. Josh Torbich. That's what I called you in the intro. So thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and tell your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So take us back to your childhood, like where you grew up, what your family was like, and bring us forward from there. I I mean, honestly, if you could picture like the most beautiful childhood that anybody could have, you would probably be picturing something close to what I had. You know, it was a, I was born and raised in Johnson County, North Carolina. It's just a a little bit South of Raleigh. And uh, I had a really active mom and dad. I was the um, baby, baby of the family. And whenever I say that I had uh, three other siblings, but I was eight years younger than my closest sibling. So I was, I was the kid who came along where my parents went, oh, we didn't know that could still happen, you know, type of thing. So I was the surprise of the family, even though they say to this day that they tried really hard. But I guess in that complex, it left me kind of closer to like an only child type of mentality, just because they were so much older by the time. I mean, all of them were almost out of the house by the time I hit middle school. So when I look back on that, it kind of added to some of the things that I can see now breaking down the psychology of everything of what I became in that. But moving forward, I was the kid who had really shined in athletics at an early age. I was a baseball, football player, and I had a lot of um, opportunities there um, as a child. And my parents were 100 percent supportive, like dad was the baseball third base coach, you know, what I mean, and mom was on the front row cheering me on. And uh, I'm telling you, it was just brand new truck the day I turned 16, you know, just so many resources and so many opportunities that I had as a kid. And it really didn't get much better for anybody else around me. We weren't a wealthy family, um, but we were definitely middle class and they extended themselves and were really smart with their money so that they could give a good childhood to me. That's awesome. And so when did you like encounter or start with drugs or, and or alcohol? How'd you get started on that? I, I had this thing. So like, I could always tell that there was like something uh, different, even as a child. And uh, like, I can tell, I was an overly self-involved person, you know, kind of like an inferiority complex. And 
I had this inner monologue that would always go in my head, you know what I mean, where I thought people were talking about me, you know, just those kind of like things where I would feel weak, inferior, second to everyone that I would meet. And um, I remember that social situations would always kind of cause a tax or a drain on me. And in most cases, um, I was capable of maintaining, though. So like uh, if you looked at me, I looked like a kid who was engaged with his friends or I looked like a kid who was right in the middle of his social circle and having the time of his life. But man, on the inside, like I never really felt the way that other people looked that were around me. And uh, it had it had taken its toll on me to an extent to where I became a very fake person. Um, I got a lot of my um, affirmations from other people as kind of like my initial introduction to a drug, you know what I mean, to where I was like a people pleaser type of person. And as long as everybody in the room liked me, then I felt like I could kind of sigh, small sigh of relief. Uh, okay, I'm in a safe place, you know, but if there was any kind of conflict that existed, I, I kind of really had a hard time. It would keep me up at night, even as a child, if there was any kind of friction, no ability to slough off just the things that are a part of normal everyday life, you know what I mean, that we come to see. And I was 13 years old. Um, and it was alcohol was the first thing that I ever tried. And I never uh, knew that alcohol would get you high. Like I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home. I, there was never a Bud Light in my refrigerator. You know what I mean? As a kid, I knew that people drink and I grew up in a Christian home. So like my parents would always say these cliche religious things like, uh, you know, alcohol is uh, the, the devil's uh, in liquid form or, you know, what I mean, something like that. So like I knew it was bad, but I didn't understand the effects. And I remember I was uh, I was surrounded by a group of like 16 year old boys um, and they all had it was back in the day whenever the ricers, the, you know, with the loud mufflers attached to them, they used to pollute the streets. And with these 16 year old kids, there was probably like four or five of these ricers amongst, you know, a few of them. And I'm 13. And to me, these guys are like kings of the school. You know what I mean? So I'm watching them. And I'm, I'm telling you that, like, I looked at them and I thought to myself, man, if I could just find a way to get in with these guys, like I would have arrived. You know what I mean? Like, I remember feeling that way, like, this is my ticket, man, type of thing. And uh, one of them had swiped a bottle of 151 rum from their parents' liquor cabinet. And um, it's uh, not the not the mildest. I was going to uh, say intro. that's kind of that's like okay. Could you maybe start with a Bud Light or like <laughs> no. you know like a rosé wine? They, but I'm no. telling you, they didn't. You have had it to go the for the show. hard stuff. That's what wow. I'm saying. Yeah, I, I'm telling. They swiped about 151 rum. I don't know whose idea that was. I've tried to think about it. I still know some of those guys today. So like we've talked about it before. But they're passing the bottle around in a circle. I mean, there might be like 10 of us or eight of us or something like that. And uh, I, I mean, really, honestly, though, when you feel the way that I felt on the inside, you become a watcher of other people. You know, you watch what other people are doing to see how you're supposed to perform. You know, like because my whole life was feeling a performance. You know what I mean? Like to figure out what people expected of me. And I'm watching these guys. I noticed that the dude who takes a bigger swig off of the bottle gets more attention from everybody else. You know, so they're passing the jug around and the <laughs> bottle gets to me. It doesn't really matter at this point if it's like gasoline in the jug. Like I'm already made up my mind. I'm taking a bigger swig than everybody else. And I did that. I turned up the bottle. 
you know, it took like three gulps or something crazy like that. And then the burning kicked in and my eyes started watering. But the, I think the most sinister thing about it was that after I, I regained my composure for the first time in my life, I felt the effects and like, you know how it is at two o'clock or 2 a.m. in the bar, whenever you look around to the people to the left and your right, and you ain't never met them before in your life, but you're like, I love you, man. Like, we're going to start a business together one day. Like, we're going to be buried, right? Like, you don't even know these people from Adam, but you feel so connected to people. And that's a hard thing to compete with for a kid like me who's 13, never feeling damn connected to anybody. Yep. So, I mean, the presentation for me was a major solution to the way that I felt. And it's a hard thing. Wow. Wow. Okay. So there you were and alcohol made you, made you King. So where did you go? I'm kidding when I said, of course, but where did you go from there? How did you progress from there? Well, I mean, it was literally the most immediate and effective solution that I had ever encountered to fix the way that I felt. It took away my insecurity. So naturally, I mean, any 13 year old kid, I couldn't be blitzed all the time. So it kind of, it kind of turned me into the party guy at school. I developed my identity around that. I was the kid who was, everybody was calling to find out where the party was on the weekends, buying booze for his friends. Um, You can tell I'm a bigger fella. So by the age of 16, I was able to walk into the ABC store and buy it for myself. And I remember I was encountered somebody. I got into some trouble and uh, naturally, like any adolescent would, I guess, teenager who's drinking and stuff and nothing too serious, just had gotten into fights and um, picked up some like underage drinking or minor in possession of alcohol, things like that. Um, Never did any serious time, but they hooked me up with like a... um, divergence program, um, you know, deference program inside of the jails for like a teen adolescence. There was another guy who was involved in that system with me and he found out we knew each other kind of, but this guy was kind of not so much the partier, more along the lines of like the stoner, you know, type, mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yep. And um, he, he said, you know, man, you, you're drinking yourself to death, something along the lines of that, you know what I mean? Like, what if I told you I could give you something that would make you feel just as good and you could fit a whole week's supply in your shirt pocket? And uh, I'm 16 years old at this point, and I'm like, just as good? Like, yeah, sign me up, man. And he introduced me to opioid painkillers. Um, and I remember it wasn't a hard learning curve for me to figure out pretty quickly that if I take them, I feel this way in 30 minutes. But if I would snort them, I feel this way instantly. So very quickly, I was snorting pain pills in that. Wow. Wow. You're off and running. Yeah, to the races. You were off and running. Yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, how did it go from there? I Before you, you can really consider someone like me kind of not not exactly balling in the cheddar all the time and pain pills is a very expensive habit and the circles that I was exposed to obviously had found more frugal options for their high and uh, so before the age of 18 I was introduced to intravenous heroin Uh, found out that that could get you downtown right now Um, I was like I think a, a really important thing was that I was kind of like one of those students who didn't have to do much to get by I was never a straight A student 
but I was a student who could maintain a C average pretty seamlessly. You know what I mean? Just like didn't put much effort into it, but could show up and take the test and pass. And I was able to do that in high school, but I got strung out on the heroin by the age of 18. Um, and that thing took me quicker than anything else ever could to where it was finally an everyday habit. I remember the first time that I went through detox and I'm like sick and I'm puking and you know what I mean? I'm just feeling so nasty and my legs feel like they're about to fall off of my body. They're so restless. And I remember going through that thinking, what is wrong? Like I got the flu or something like that. And then one of my friends actually had to tell me like, no, dude, you're withdrawn. You need some more drugs, you know? Yeah. So man, it was just, the whole thing was a shocker, you know, to find out what it had become at that point though, I was kind of already sold out to it. You know, like I, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine going a day, you know, without it on purpose, pretty much. Right. So that it, it goes from like you, instead of thinking, oh, look at how sick I am. I shouldn't do this anymore. It's more, oh, look how sick I am. I just need more so that I'm not sick. Right. What did your, what did your parents think? Did they have any clue what was going on with you? They thought it was something that I would grow out of. I think oh. uh, they trusted me more than I was than I should have been trusted. They had no okay. idea about the pain pills or the heroin or any of that. They thought I was partying. Uh, they knew that I was drinking probably, but I think they thought, oh, this is a phase and he'll grow up. All when he teenagers gets to do it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. Okay. So now you're a full blown heroin addict. Did you graduate high school? I did. Yeah. Okay. And did you go to college? I did uh, for a short period of time. I was very quickly proved to be unable to maintain. Uh, I checked in and checked out almost immediately. Wasn't able to maintain any kind of grade point average or anything else like that. I mean, I was able to seamlessly kind of work my way through high school doing all this stuff. But by the time I was 19, it had taken such a tight hold on me. I was incapable of managing any other kind of life other than chasing the drug. And by this time, my parents were very, very much aware that there was something really significantly wrong. But they didn't know about the drugs. They didn't know that that's what was going on. They they figured it out along the terms of me stopping the school, not moving on to any kind of education standpoint dropping out of college is where it all kind of came to the surface. They definitely didn't know that I had like sold by soul for them. You know what mm. I mean? They thought, Oh no, he's gotten caught up with a bad crowd. Right. Not knowing that I am the bad crowd, that right. type of thing. Right. Okay. So what happened then? Through the process, I think of all of that, like there was multiple attempts to where they thought, okay, well, let's do this intervention. Like they didn't put up a sign or anything like that, but for more or less purposes, that's what it was. Like my whole family, the very loved kid, the apple of everybody's eye, everybody's shocked, you know, like, oh man, we thought he was going to be so successful. And now he's just falling to pieces right in front of us. And some tragic things happened. I'd gotten a DWI. Um, and then of course had blamed it. You know, it's pretty sick stuff because it's like, one of the first ailments that I can see that I had adopted really quickly was just an innate ability to justify and rationalize anything and everything that came into my life. It was like consequences were never my fault. You know what I mean? It was always the system that was against me, you know, or something else along those lines that just kept me from addressing like, dude, you got to make some drastic changes. 
And I felt like everyone else was buying the stuff that I was sell, selling because I mean, I was trying to paint the picture of like poor old Josh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, let's feel bad for him because the judge is out to get him, you know, type of thing. <laughs> but nobody really was. And um, everybody knew that there was the jig was kind of up for me. And I, I hopped in the truck one day and uh, I was, I had, I passed out the night before, didn't wake up until like noon or something like that. And I, I backed out of my driveway. I actually didn't, I was so out of it. I was so blitzed. I had woken up and, you know, done a couple shots of heroin, just like that. And then had hopped in my truck to run up the street. And I backed up actually on the way out, I backed up into my neighbor's fence and didn't even know I did it. You know what I mean? I was just so whacked out and I got in the truck and I started driving up the road and I got to uh, the highway and I was on a four lane highway, um, just kind of like a highway business section. And uh, I overdosed in the truck and wow. uh, I, I passed out. I overdosed and I ended up swerving across a couple lanes and hitting an 18 wheeler head on. And uh, I didn't have my seatbelt on. I uh, had smacked my head on the windshield and I busted my arm open pretty bad. And uh, I got, I mean, b- complete blackout pretty much. They Narcan me up. I was uh, doing some pills called oxymorphone opanas at the time. And I, I woke up in the hospital um, and they were digging glass out of my arm and I was all stitched up on my forehead and stuff like that. You know, uh, you're lucky and, to be alive, right? Yeah. 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 Well, that's what the, okay. the nurse told me. Yeah. Wow. The nurse said, you know, you must have a, a guardian angel. Uh, my parents were like, uh, their sentiment was more like relief when they got to the hospital and they got the calls, you know, in their mind, they thought to themselves like, okay, this happened, but he's alive and surely he's done. You surely know he's I mean? going like, to wake up from this and go, I'm done with the drugs. Yeah. yeah. Not, yeah, and no, I, huh? well, I, I mean, like I said it, you know, inside of the hospital and I would have liked to say that I was being sincere, but looking back from, you know, the past eight years since I've been sober and looking back at now, I mean, I thought about using drugs while I was sitting in the hospital bed, you know what I mean? Like I just, it was like, I was ready to get back to the races with it. And, uh, I, it was another attempt to try to pull myself up from my bootstraps, right? And I had already tried some outpatient recovery components. So they thought this was it. You know, he's, he's alive. Thank God he's going to level off and get sober because there's no way he's going back after all this. This is it. I'm 21 years old at this time. And uh, my mom, who had moved to Carolina Beach a few years before that, um, which is down on the East Coast, she uh, says, you're going to come live with me. And uh, I'm going to pretty much give you one of those kids startup packages again type of thing, which I love, by the way. They're great, right? The kids startup packages. So we're going to get you re-enrolled back in school. You know, I mean, we're going to get you set up with, uh, you know, another vehicle because you just totaled this one, you know, like what good parents do. So naturally, with those kind of resources at my disposal and feeling like I had zero consequences from any of the, the crap that I had just done over the past few years, it was like three months and I was back on the sauce. And this thing has like a, a like the component that I know about recovery the most is that sobriety doesn't equate to recovery. You know what I mean? Like you can put a plug in the jug for a certain amount of time. 
but the sickness can stay entrenched in all of this. If that, you know, that yeah, there's sense. way more to it. There's way more to recovery and to stay sober is maybe what you're talking about. It's like, it's easy to stop, but yeah. then how do you then deal with life and stay sober? And that's, that's not easy. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of the spot that I'd found myself in, I guess, you know, and the first time it had taken me years to spiral out of control and lose everything, so to speak. But this time it was like eight months. And, 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 you know, obviously I just never, I never recovered. It wasn't like I was starting from the same place. Again, I had already played the clock through so much and I was out of control so quickly, like pawning TVs, stealing stuff from, I mean, just robbing my mom blind, you know, all of that just, nasty grimy just sick stuff that we do to feed our habits yep the stuff that you know most of the addicts we've talked to when when they're not addicts they say i would never ever do that i would never lie cheat steal sell my body i would never do any of that and then the drugs take hold and they just do whatever they have to you are listening to the addiction podcast point of no return for more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Okay, what changed? When did you realize you, you need to stop? Because obviously it didn't happen with a head-on collision with an 18-wheeler, which no, I don't know. Didn't. I like to think it would make me stop, but I don't know. <laughs> Haven't been an addict, so I can't say. They, uh, my family knew obviously that the problem was too big. Um, and for the first time in their life, they, they took some good counsel from some good people and they put their foot down and their way of helping me was no longer to give me more resources. Their way of helping me was to pull back every resource that I ever had. They stopped enabling you basically. That's right. And that, that's a tough thing, but yeah. This is why it's so tough for families. And this is what my own mother and father had to overcome. For some reason, they think, and and I've talked to plenty of mothers doing what I do today about the same topic. They say, well, I can't make him homeless. I mean, because he'll be, you know, in danger. What if he dies type of thing? And they don't understand that the thing that's killing us isn't the elements. If, isn't yeah, cold if you weather. don't, he's going to die. So that's right. You know, yeah. what would you rather? Would you rather have him die from an overdose? I mean, I don't, right. it's a horrible thing to try and think of how, what you would prefer, but you're not doing him any favors. The things that's killing us is the things that we do upstairs in our parents' bonus room. You know what that's I mean? Right. That's what's killing us. And 
they were talking to some good people. They had gotten plugged in with Al-Anon. I'm not sure if you're familiar with their art. Yep. They have an awesome group, you know, their local groups most of the time. And they had gotten a hold of some people who went through the similar stuff, but they put their foot down. Matter of fact, the the last thing that my mom said to me before I was shipped off to a detox program was that she would uh, she was going to chop me up into pieces and throw me into the ocean <laughs> rather than letting me continue to live this way. So she sounded serious this time. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But I mean, she took the hard blow. You know, I mean, she did what needed to be done and and wasn't willing to watch me kill myself anymore. And left up to those devices, I had a couple of choices. I could I could either go live on the beach like, you know, a homeless person and be that, which I had done for a couple of times, or I could go and try to get help. Look, I, I'm, I can't lie and say that I was excited about any of the stuff. I was bitter, man. Like I was like, it was not my idea. I felt pressured into it. I felt forced into it. And here I am sitting in another detox center. This time, knowing that I'm not just going to dry out for seven days and go back home to a cushy life eaten from my parents' fridge, knowing that this time after the seven-day detox, I got to follow through with some kind of drastic measures. And since they didn't want to give me any resources, I knew it was going to be one of those free rehab programs where they make you work and, you know I mean, do all this other stuff to go there. Yep. Okay. So what happened in rehab that time? Did something change? I- I was still pretty like a, a, a nasty person, still feeling like I had been done wrong. And I had went through my process, looked like I had seven days in detox. And then I was shipped over to a safe house to wait for a bed um, at a place that I had strategically picked that was closer to my demographic, right? So I had picked a place that was closer to where I was living before in case I wanted to retreat back without my parents' resources. But I had showed up there and I remember getting there underneath the context of like, okay, I'll check this place out for a little bit and I'll stay here. Really at this point, my intention was to get my parents back up in my hip pocket. And that, I know that doesn't sound great, but that's really where I was in my program. Like I was interested in making sure that they felt like I was willing to do things differently so I could get them back in my, get back in their good graces. And uh, I remember showing up there and it wasn't even, it, it wasn't even like a counselor, a therapist. It wasn't a pastor or anything like that. It was just some other dude who had been in the rehab program for a few more months than, than I had been. And um, he had started talking to me and I really wasn't interested in the conversation at all. You know what I mean? Like it just, Hey, cool. What's up, man. I'll sit on this porch here and, and chat it up with you. I just pulled up in the driveway type of thing. Uh and he starts to talk to me about like his experiences and I'm listening to everything that he's saying, but I'm not really listening to everything that he's saying. Like, even though he's speaking the same language that I should be familiar with, like I'm not really there inside of that chair. And then he says, look, man, you're probably not going to be successful this time. And I go like, like, I heard that, right? Like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? And uh, he said, well, you know, what are you here for? you know, that all knowing question, like, why are you here? And I was like, well, I'm a heroin addict. I can't get off the heroin. And, you know, it's this, this, and this. And he said, well, wait a minute, you're sober right now. You were at a safe house before this. Like, what's, what is that? You know, what's going on there? You're sober. I said, yeah, but I always keep going back. And he said, oh, sounds like your problem starts where your heroin and drug addiction ends, you know, that you're still sick. Even after that stuff, I never looked at it in that context before. I never looked at it in the context of like, man, like I'm still this same person who keeps going back to heroin, 
even after all life signals are pointing me away from heroin, you know? So it's like in your best of decisions, you should at least chalk it up to saying, yeah, probably shouldn't do that anymore. You know what I mean? It's almost killed me. So in talking to him, he says, look, if you could convince yourself of three things this time in your process, you would already be much further ahead than any other time before. And I'm thinking, okay, dude, like you don't know me, but what's the three things type of thing. And he says, one, convince yourself that on a day-to-day basis, you fail to see the big picture. Two, that you're often wrong about life, yourself, and the people in it. And three, that right now, at this point in your life, you have a better shot of going out and asking the male lady what you should do next rather than listening to you again. My ego got wrapped up in that last one, of course. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You get that thing like, who do you think you are, you know, type of thing. But for some reason, like I heard him, you know what I mean? And I I sincerely believe that for the first time in my life, I didn't have a broken receiver. Like for the first time in my life, I took someone, something that someone had to offer me and actually digested it enough to where it maybe could potentially make an impact on my future. And even though it might not have been something huge or anything like that for the first time. Yeah, you listened and it, it, obviously resonated with you. That's that I'd say those three things again, because they're, I think they're heavy duty. Say them again. Uh, On a day-to-day basis, you fail to see the big picture that you're constantly wrong about life, yourself and the people around you. And that right now at this time in your life, you have a better shot of asking the male lady what you should do next rather than listening to you again. Wow. You know, you know, what's interesting to me is that you can remember those exact three things as exactly as you can, which obviously they resonated enough with you that you made a change. That's, those are, that's good advice. That's pretty amazing. I didn't know at the time that that conversation was laying the framework for the mindset and the mentality that for the first time in my life would not just steer me away from drugs, but would make me somebody who actually entered into a recovery state of mind and then eventually a recovered state of mind. You see what, like being yeah. in that process. Amazing. Yeah. That's a, it's amazing. It's so, so simple. You know, what, what resonated with you? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Just, just out of curiosity, do you still know the guy? Yeah. Yeah. I'm still friends with him. Yeah. And he's still doing well too. He graduated the program, you know, uh, obviously much before I did, but yeah, he graduated and moved on and he's a family man. He's doing good. Yep. That's awesome. I sort of wonder if perhaps those three things kind of had resonated with him already. So he knew that they might resonate with you. Yeah, I'm sure. It's just a big old train of passing it along to the next person. So I can see that for sure. He knows he's a big part of my story. But I mean, I would like to say, too, that like the next morning I woke up and angels were coming out of the ceiling over my bed. But of course, you know, that's not it. No, I get it. (laughs) But I mean, it it was a start, you know what I mean? And it was a significant start to a mentality shift. And, And that's the whole point. And that's why we call this the point of no return, because we want people to understand that whatever it takes for the addict to change that mentality, I don't care whether it's an epiphany from God. I don't care whether it's angels coming out. I don't care whether it's a guy sitting on the front porch talking to you, giving you three points that you went, oh, okay. You know, it it just, it has to happen. And yeah. it happened for you. So tell us what, what was it like after that then? I was still in a rehab center 
and it was a free rehab center and it was in between a couple cornfields and it was in the sticks and it was just a I mean it wasn't passages Malibu exactly you know what I'm saying so I was I was in one of those rehab centers more like a group home facility uh, but it was a faith-based place and uh, I had started to morally correct my compass if that makes sense I had started mm -hmm. to trade you know, in things like lying and deceit and manipulation and selfishness, the program kind of forces you to lean more towards honesty and selfless service, you know, I mean, all of those things. And so inherently, I started to reap some of the benefits of actually being a genuine person, which was not like me before, you know, like, I think that literally the first sign of relief in my life was generated from figuring out what it's like to not be two different people in two different circles who has to wear two different faces all the time. I had no idea that people could be the same person everywhere they went, which is a lot easier as a general rule to keep up with, you know, and yep, yep. it was new news to me. So <laughs> I, I guess when I, when I laid it all down uh, and looked at the person that I was becoming, he was more attractive than the person that I was before. Um, and as I worked, I noticed a few things about myself um, and I, I had gotten into it with my sponsor and started to work through the steps. Um, I'd started to go through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I started to remove all of these things uh, that I considered that were separating me off from God. And uh, the reality is, once I started to shuffle all of these horrible, nasty things to the side, I didn't know this at the time, but I was literally clearing the path for God to have a genuine encounter with me. And um, I'd become the kind of person who actually began to expect those kind of exchanges between God and I. And it was a beautiful experience. I started attending church and I started understanding spiritual principle and the different things that had wrapped up inside of all of that, you know, just becoming a genuine person throughout every atmosphere that you would enter into. And I made the decision to rededicate my life to Christ, the religion of my childhood, being able to find out, though, that like I never really had anything actually going on with me and the creator of the universe. I, I had believed in God before, but it was like I was riding off of the backs of my parents' religious coattails my entire childhood. You know what I mean? Like to mm -hmm. me, God was real, but he was like way off in the beta quadrant hanging planets or something <laughs> like that. He wasn't of any use to me today, you know, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. No, I get it. I get it. And you've taken that faith and turned it into recovery to help others, right? Tell us yeah. a little bit about how that evolved and, and, and what that is. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, going through the program, it had a staff of one. It was a very small place, and it just had one really kind-hearted pastor who uh, had you know founded the place, and he was running the place. And when I had reached the end of my stay, the end of the recovery program, they approached me, and uh, he says, you know, hey, we could really use some help you know, I'm getting older and stuff like that. Would you consider staying for another six months? And, you know, it wasn't anything glorious, like answer telephones and, you know, drive this old 95 bus with two lawn chairs in the back of it. You know I mean? It was just a, it was just like a clunk of metal pretty much that we rolled down the highway to drive to meetings and church services and stuff. And I was talking to my sponsor, I'm 20, 22 years old, you know, now at the time. Okay. And I'm saying things like, well, I'm ready to you know, kick life in the teeth. I got to get back to school and I got to do, you know, all these things, all these plans and ambitions that I had. And he said, he said this to me, he said, you know, for the first time in your life, you have, you have the ability 
to be selfless and to be useful to God's kids? Do you think that God would rather have you go and pursue your own agenda like you've always done? Or do you think that he would have you take that opportunity for the first time in your life? And he guilted me pretty much into staying. <laughs> so I stayed and uh, it, it was no, there was no pay involved. You know, of course I lived there at the rehab center and uh, he started, it was an amazing thing because the more work that we did, the more resources that started to come our way. And um, as the, as the process began to unfold, I started to, my mom calls it a niche, you know what a niche, you know what a niche yeah, is, yeah, right? Yeah. But I started to develop like this personality of like, oh my gosh, what a fulfilling way to live my life. Like, holy smoke. I mean, it wasn't anything glorious. You know what I mean? I wasn't a businessman back then, nothing like that. I was just like, sitting on the porch, telling people the same stuff that the guy had told me on day one, like slumming it up pretty much. You know what I mean? Like listening to kids who would come in there with all their sick judgments and stuff and being able to say like, no, nah, man, that you got it all wrong. Or, you know, being able to talk to people and have them say, man, like, have you read my mail or something like that? You know, <laughs> like, and, and I began to fall in love with that. You know what I mean? To really be a part of other people's journey and, you remember what the drugs and the alcohol gave me when I was 13 years old, that feeling of connectiveness, I started to find my new crack, you know, yep. in that, like, I literally started to feel that connectiveness with people that was genuine. Yeah. I don't think that there's much that's better than helping people. Yeah. Bottom line. First time in my life I had ever experienced it. And Little did I know that I had cleaned up enough to where all of those pressures that I used to have to live under no longer were making me feel over the top straw about to break the camel's back. Anytime, you know, I had cleaned up in that process so much, taking care of my court cases, you know, paid back the restitution, you know, some mm -hmm. of those things like got yep. myself yep. out from underneath all of the weight of that kind of lifestyle. And I had no idea that I was creating a system that I could actually live in, you know? So it was a, yep. it was a really looking back. It's a really beautiful thing to look at, but in the middle of it, you don't know that it's happening, you know, which is kind of a sick way in itself, I guess. But. <laughs> so how did you get from that to creating the, the centers that you're now running? How did you, how did that happen? Yeah. So I mean, God just really blessed the efforts inside of all of that stuff. And uh, in 2015, I was able to take the group home that I was at now and was able to turn it into a program and actually turn it into something that looked like um, we actually became a certified substance abuse treatment site in 2015 and then moved on from there, it continued to grow it continued to expand. Um, and then we continue to take on new residents and new clients and add more program. Uh, in 2018, I was able to introduce a therapy model. So now we're one of the only places in the state of North Carolina that offer a faith-based 12-step approach with professional therapy services. So we actually have the whole kabang there inside of one facility. Um, and then we started to take on new properties and new facilities. And uh, before I knew it, I had 25 employees and four <laughs> facilities and God had taken me and put me through an education. I was able to get my master's degree um, mm. in education and I kept rolling downhill with all this stuff. And it, before I knew it, I opened up my eyes and I was so entrenched where half the time I didn't even feel like I was working. Right.
Right. And doesn't your program also help people find jobs as well? Don't you have that aspect of it? So, yep. you know, kind of another aspect of recovery, if you will. Yeah. So um, a couple of years ago, we were able to develop programming uh, for the Workforce Redevelopment Program, which was endorsed by the uh, Chamber of Commerce or the Department of Commerce, rather. And now it's taking people who have limited skills, definitely hard to hire people and drastically increasing their employability through a partnership with our local community college. And I just think that's huge. I think that's yeah. fabulous because so often I think, um, especially people in the same situation you were where the drug abuse starts at such a young age, you lose out on a lot of the skills that those of us who didn't go through that take for granted in terms of getting into the workplace and things that yes. we ought, we just know how to do. And you lose out on a lot of that. And so I think the fact that you, you are able to help these people also find work because it's just huge. I think that what you're doing now, Josh, is just amazing and awesome. Josh, if you had one message to give to the people who listen, what would that message be to get to inspire them to get help? In order for new solutions to take effect in your life that will produce new results, you need to be willing to put everything that you think you know to the side. And that's what my experience looked like. I, even, even the things that I had found to be true again in my life, I still had to put those to the side in order to have a genuine new experience and move forward inside of my process of recovery. And I'm eternally blessed for that. I better mention it, you know, or else I get in trouble, but I'm now happily married. I have a beautiful oh, yeah. wife. Uh, her name's Casey. We just had our first son. Uh, <gasps> Congratulations. His, his LJ. Yeah. He's a, he's four months old and gosh, like, yeah, never think that you could love something so much, but he's so perfect. And his name's LJ. He's little Josh and uh, he's Joshua Andrew Jr. So he's just a precious boy. And that's why, I mean, I, heroin addicts should not be allowed to live the life that I get to live today. And um, I think that people who are getting well, which of course I get to see a lot of it. I see a lot of people who get well today. And the one trait and characteristic that seems to be a commonality between them all is that the people who are willing to go to any length are the ones who seem to get well. Yep, I think that that's very true. And one more thing before I let you go, what is the name of your treatment centers and how do people find you? Sure. It's called Christian Recovery Centers Incorporated. Uh, you can look them up online at crcirecovery.org. Um, and you can also find all of our WRP programs on that site as well. Awesome. Josh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So good to meet you guys. Thank you. Same here. Great interview. Great story. Um, hopefully that helps you, you who are listening Hopefully it gives you some kind of hope and lets you know that help is definitely available. So you just need to reach out. And, you know, I know that sometimes that's the hardest thing to do is to just reach out. But don't wait. Reach out. If it's you that's an addict, reach out today. If you have a loved one that's an addict, don't enable them, but reach out and get them real help. We'll be back again next week. We'll have another interview. And y'all take care. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is 
theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.